Take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 4. I read a story this week that came out in the Wall Street Journal many, many years ago um, about a guy named Harry Lipsig. And Harry Lipsig was in the Wall Street Journal because he had just won a case with a brand new law firm that impacted the city of New York. Now, what was interesting about this was that it was a law firm that Harry had started after he left his previous law firm that he had also started and built for 60 years. When he was 88 years old, he left the law firm he started and built for 60 years to start a new law firm. And they asked him, well, why did you go to a new law firm? And he said, because apparently to the guys that were younger than me, I would not die soon enough. And they thought it was their turn to run the firm. So he left the firm, started a new firm, and he got this case. The first case he got was from a woman suing the city of New York because a drunken police officer had struck and killed her 71-year-old husband with his patrol car. The woman sued the city for $1 million of lost wages and future earnings potential. The city of New York said that there is no way that a 70-year-old one, 71-year-old man has that much lost income and future earnings potential. So the wife hired Lipsig, an 88-year-old lawyer. He walked into the courtroom and gave a vigorous opening statement, and the city quickly settled out of courts. In the article they asked Lipsick, they said, um, tell us about your reasoning in starting this new law firm. And he talked about the guys wanting to die. He said, I just have decided I'm never going to retire. He said, a few doctors have recommended it along the way, but they're all dead now. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing until I can't. Now, most of us may not end up arguing cases against the city of New York in our late 80s. Some of us may not have the energy of Henry Lipsick in our 80s or even in our 40s. But the truth is, if we get down to the core of who we are, we all want to live full lives. Amen? successful lives, lives that matter, lives that make a difference in the world. I read a quote this week from an author that said, Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving softly in a pretty and well-preserved body. But rather, it should be a skid into the broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, Wow, what a ride. I like that, right? It's like Paul who said that he... His life was like a drink offering that had been completely poured out. Like, I want to live my life to the absolute fullest. Today, as we continue our series in this message on the life of King Solomon, one of the things that we're going to discover is that one of the men in history who lived their lives as full as almost possibly could be, at least from the start, was King Solomon. 
Last week, if you remember, if you were here, we started this series of messages on King Solomon and we talked about the reality that he was visited by God in a dream, that he, God came to him and said, whatever you want, ask. A blank check was written, an open invitation, whatever you want, ask. If you're here last week, you know what Solomon asked for, right? What did he ask for? Wisdom, kind of. He asked for a discerning heart, a listening heart, and then these discernment to be able to act on what he sees. He basically said, God, I want to see. And he was talking about ruling his people. He was talking about governing his people. He was talking about governing the people of God. He says, God, I want to see them as you see them. I want to see the problems as you see the problems. I want to see the challenges as you see the challenges. I want to see opportunities as you see opportunities. Then I want to act on them accordingly based on what you would want me to do. And I want to do it for your glory glory and for the sake of your kingdom immediately following god's answer to him in chapter three they begin over the next several chapters and we're going to cover little bits and pieces i'm going to i'm going to read a section to you then we're going to talk about some things that happened throughout they begin to show how god gave solomon wisdom in so many areas in first kings chapter four it starts with a list of names of people We'll talk about why that's important in a minute. We're not going to read the list of names. But in chapter 4, verse 20, he says this. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. Now, here's what I want you to understand. First of all, this is in the United Kingdom. Judah and Israel will eventually be divided into two separate kingdoms. Solomon is the apex, the pinnacle of the two of them together. In fact, when his son takes over is when the split will happen. And so whoever's writing this in retrospect, after all the first king has happened, is reminding them that this was a time when Judah and Israel were together. And they were as numerous as the sand by this sea. They were eating and drinking And rejoicing. Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines and as far as the border of Egypt. They offered tribute or taxes or they paid and served Solomon all the days of his life. Then he gives us a description of what he needed every day for his household, for his servants. Solomon's provisions for one day was 150 bushels of fine flour, 300 bushels of meal, 10 fattened cattle, 20 range cattle, 100 sheep and goats, deer, gazelles, roebucks, and pen-fed poultry. That's a lot, all right? For he had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates, from Tipsa to Gaza, and over all the kings west of the Euphrates. He had peace on all his surrounding borders. Throughout Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan to Beersheba, each person under his own vine, And his own fig tree. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. Now if you've got 40,000 stalls of horses, how many chariots do you have? Close to that. 12,000 horsemen. And each of those deputies for a month in turn provided food for King Solomon. And for everyone that came to his table. They neglected nothing. Each man brought the barley and the straw for the chariot teams and the other horses to the required places according to his assignment. Verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom, very great insight and understanding as vast as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. 
He was wiser than anyone. And then it gives us a list of names. Ethan, the Ezraite, and Ahimon, and Calcol, and Darda, sons of Mahal. We have no idea who those people are. None. But apparently they were wise. His reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. Verse 32. Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about trees from the cedars in Lebanon to the hyssop growing out of the wall. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Emissaries of all people sent by every king on earth who had heard of his wisdom came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. So 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 through 34, is really a summary of the fact that this man lived an unbelievable life. When you look at chapter 3 all the way through chapter 10, there is a list of at least 10 things that Solomon was really good at. Like one of the best in the world at. And it's amazing when you get those lists together to look and to see all that encompasses the life of a man named Solomon. For instance, it tells us that Solomon was a great ruler. He was a man who governed over the largest territory in Israel's history. Chapter 4 tells us that he was a great organizer. It gives us this whole list of names, and it's really kind of confusing when you read all those names. But here's what he basically did. He got the best leaders that he could find from religious, historical, military, financial areas, and he put them all together, and he worked with them even when they disagreed. He learned to listen to them and to discern what ought to happen. Does that sound familiar? He learned to listen to them and discern what ought to happen from that. Just the size of the complexity of the government was in comparison to this little nation just a few hundred years ago. Maybe not even that long ago. That was just a group of tribes kind of hanging out together. Now was this impressive major nation on the world scene. He was great at being a ruler. Solomon was an unbelievable judge. We talked about this a little bit last week, and he judged, didn't matter who it was, what they came from, that he judged with insight and justice and fairness and compassion for all people. In the story we talked about last week with the two mothers disputing over a baby, he used wise um, understanding and insight to choose who the actual mother was. Solomon was an unbelievable builder. He oversaw construction of the temple of God. That is one of the most magnificent structures ever built in the history of the world. Sadly, we will never get a real glimpse of what it was like because it was destroyed in war. But the depictions of it are unbelievable. We can't do justice. There's no building in the world today that would do justice to what the temple of God that Solomon built looked like. In fact, there's a story, if you know Old Testament history, the people of God uh, get taken into captivity, the temple gets destroyed, they begin to come back after um, they are allowed by the Persians to come back, and they begin to rebuild the temple, this is particularly in Ezra, and as they're rebuilding the temple, they get the foundation laid, and they begin to build the temple, and it says that the men that had seen Solomon's temple, the ones that had seen the previous one, they loved the fact that the temple had been built. They were happy for the fact that the temple had been built. But it said they wept because it could not compare to what they had seen. He was an unbelievable builder. I, I firmly believe that if the temple of God still stood today, it, would, it is recognized one of the great wonders of the ancient world, but it would be at the top of that list. He was a financial guru. I don't know how to really say it anywhere else. 
He's like the Dave Ramsey of his time, all right? He was a guy that knew how to make money and use it effectively. He also liked to show off his wealth. So, for instance, it talks about all of these buildings that he built being coated in gold. Not like brick or uh, aluminum siding, but gold. When's the last time a builder asked you that? Hey, what would you like to cover the outside of your house? You got any gold that we can use? It was also that silver was so common that it had almost no value to them. In chapter 4, verse 25, that we read just a minute ago, it says that throughout Solomon's reign there was safety and peace, and each person had his own vine and his own fig tree. That's the modern-day equivalent of what happened in the early 20th century when presidents used to boast that if you follow me, if you elect me, then everybody will have a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. They had everything they needed. He was a scientific expert. He was internationally known expert in natural history, zoology, ornithology, and botany. For those of you that may not have paid attention, zoology is a study of animals. Ornithology, birds. Botany are plants. It tells us in chapter 4 that he knew everything from the cedar, which was the greatest plant, to the hyssop, which was the least great plant. He knew it all. He knew how to talk about it, discuss it intelligently. It also tells us he was a great military leader. It gives us some depiction of the horses he had. Those horses and chariots, those weren't just for his personal riding. That was his army. First Kings chapter 10 says us that his army was so large that nobody would dare oppose him. And that he built a massive navy, the first time really that they had ever had a navy, and he built a massive one that nobody would attack from the sea. He was a brilliant economic strategist. It tells us there were three cities that he controlled, and they're not three cities that are welcome, like we regularly know or recognize from history. They were Gezer, Megiddo, and Hazor. Now, Megiddo gets some press because it is at the end of Armageddon, and more battles have been fought at Megiddo than anywhere else in the history of the world, and the final battle will be fought in that area. But these were the three main cities that traveled on the way of the sea that gave economic prosperity. They were the main trading routes from north to south. And he taxed them. And he had tariffs in there. And because of that, the people prospered. He was a romantic. He wrote this little book called Song of Solomon. You ever seen Song of Solomon? You ever read that? It's an insightful and epic book on love. That Hebrew boys were not allowed to read until they were 18. Have you ever read Song of Solomon? You know why? Alright, don't start turning there now. Don't start reading it now. But it is a masterpiece of literature. Which leads us to the last two. He was an author and an artist. 1 Kings 4 says that he wrote 3,000 proverbs. And a thousand and five songs. Now we have some of them. Some of the Psalms are his. Proverbs is mostly his. Ecclesiastes. Song of Solomon that I mentioned. But all of that put together, I read somewhere, is just a fraction of the breadth of what he did. If you put all that together, they said we have somewhere around 600 probably of those Proverbs. And a few of those songs. Now look at that list. Don't you think that's a pretty well-rounded, accomplished individual? 
I mean, Solomon was a ruler and a judge and a builder and a financial guru and a scientific expert, a military leader, economic strategist, a romantic, an author, and an artist. And it tells us in chapter 4, verse 31, that because of that, because of that, his reputation extended to all the surrounding nations. His reputation went everywhere. It says everybody that ever heard of him came to hear from him. And perhaps the greatest example of that comes in chapter 10 when a queen decides to come visit. We're going to read just the story of that visit and I'm going to talk about why all this matters. All right, God, thanks for hanging with me through all that. Chapter 10 says this, that the queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame, connected with the name of the Lord, and came to test him with riddles. So she's coming to test him, and she's got riddles. Now, in the ancient world, riddles weren't just like funny little things to ask. There were serious questions that people tried to stump others with to test their wisdom. She came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage, with camels bearing spices, gold in great abundance, and precious stones. She came to Solomon and spoke to him about everything that was on her mind. She didn't leave anything out. So Solomon answered all of her questions. How many of her questions she answered? All. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba observed all of Solomon's wisdom, the palace he had built, the food at his table, his servants' residence, his attendant service and their attire, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he offered at the Lord's temple, it took her breath away. I want you to stop for a minute because here's what I want you to realize. She was the queen of Sheba, was an African nation somewhere over around Ethiopia, been around Egypt. She would have passed through to get to Jerusalem some of the greatest kingdoms and kings in the history of the world. And when she got to Solomon, she saw all that he had and she had her breath taken away. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your words, about your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe the reports until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, I was not even told half. Your wisdom and prosperity far exceeded the report I heard. How happy are your men? How happy are these servants of yours who always stand in your presence hearing your wisdom? Blessed be the Lord your God. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king To carry out justice and righteousness. Blessed be the Lord your God because of what I have seen. So here's this man Solomon. Last week we talked about given anything he wanted, he asked the Lord for wisdom. And the Lord said, because you have asked for a listening heart, a discerning mind, and actions to take care of that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you everything else. And over and over and over again, the scripture from chapter 3 all the way through the rest of Solomon's life shows us the way that God was faithful to do what God said he would do. And you have a man that is a great ruler and leader, an economic advisor, poet. And the question that I ask is, so what's the purpose of chapter 3 through 10? In giving us all this discussion. Some of it's just a marvel at what God has done through Solomon, yes. But what's the purpose for us? 
There are three things that I think are important for us to take away from this man's life and all that God did. And there's the first one. God keeps his promises. We have a promise-making God. We have a God that makes promises again and again and again and again. There are promises throughout Scripture. And what is shown in the life of Solomon is that God keeps his promises. Now what's interesting is Solomon's life shows God fulfilling some promises in the short term and God fulfilling some promises in the long term. In the short term, he fulfills the promise to make Solomon wise almost immediately. Amen? So Solomon asks for it. He's the ruler of the king. It says that God said, I will do that and I'll give you everything else. And then immediately it tells us a story of Solomon using his wisdom to discern between whose has the baby, right? And then chapter 4 tells us the way that he governed. And the end of chapter 4 gives us all the things that he saw. And so that's an immediate understanding of God's promises being fulfilled. But there's a long-term commitment that is there being fulfilled in Solomon. You see, God had made promises to Solomon's dad, David. Promises of a king that would sit on that throne and be prosperous. Promises of a temple that would be built to honor God that David couldn't build would be built by Solomon. And what we see in the life of Solomon is God fulfills the promise of one generation in another. And then there's the promise that God made to Abraham. Do you remember that promise? That I'll make your people a great people and I'll make you into a nation. Do you remember how he compared the number of people that would be Abraham's descendants? He said it would be like the stars in the sky or the... Did you hear that in the passage we read? It says Israel and Judah are like the sands on the sea. Do you think that's accidental that they use those phrases? Or do you think they were saying God is fulfilling his covenant promise to Abraham? Do you know how long it had been since God had committed that promise to Abraham? Somewhere around a thousand years. Some of you are like, I hope God doesn't wait that long for my promise. Because I don't think I'll be around. But the point is, God always keeps His promises. Sometimes they materialize quickly, almost immediately, like they do in the life of Solomon. Sometimes it's longer, like the temple, like David, from one generation to the next. And sometimes even longer, from Abraham to Solomon. So what are you waiting on from God? What's that part from God that you need? What's that thing you've been praying for? What's that promise that you've claimed from God that hasn't seen its fulfillment yet? Now let me just give you a piece of advice. It probably will not be when or how or what or where that you expect. But God will keep His promises forever and always. I don't know how it's going to happen with you. I don't know when it's going to happen to you. I don't know where it's going to happen with you. I don't know what the circumstances of your life are specifically. I don't know what it is you are waiting on God for right now. But the point of 1 Kings chapter 3 verse through at least chapter 10 is this. God keeps his promises. The promises that were most dear to the people in that day were that God would give them possession of a land and they would be a prosperous people that would show the glory of God to the nations. And when you read even what we read, it tells us that there were numerous, more numerous than the sands on the earth, 
that the extension of their kingdom was larger than they ever imagined and even larger than what God initially promised to Abraham and that every one of them had peace in what they needed to survive. God keeps His promises. The second reason that this whole passage is here, really chapter 3 through chapter 10 is this, is because it is a call to faithfulness on the part of God's people. The big word, the religious word, the theological word that is over and over referenced in this passage is the idea of covenant. And covenant is an arrangement. It is a, an agreement. It is not a contract. It is a relationship where God came to people and said, I am making my covenant with you. And God has fulfilled his end of the covenant always and forever in every way. Amen. But there's a second side of the covenant. And even when God said to Solomon, I'm going to give you wisdom. If you remember last week, he tells him, you can look back at chapter 3 on this, that he looks back and he says to him in 11 through 14, I have heard your prayer because you have not asked for all these things. I'm going to give you wisdom and I will make you wise and I will give you all this other stuff. But then he says, if you will keep my commandments and follow me. If you will keep my commandments and follow me. When he went to the Israelite people and he made them into a nation, he says, if you will keep my commandments and follow me, I will be your God and you will be my people. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus says it in this way, that if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You see, there's a second side of the covenant relationship. God is always and forever in every way faithful to his covenant. The question is, are we? Solomon would write a lot about godly wisdom and what godly wisdom looked like. And through the book of Proverbs particularly, he gives us some advice on what true wisdom looks like. He tells us, for instance, and write this down in the margin if you want to out beside these passages or if you're taking notes, write this down. You can go look it up later. But Proverbs chapter 9 is a great chapter where he gives this idea really of two people that are going, foolishness and wisdom. And we must choose whether we're going to follow the lady of foolishness or the lady of wisdom, how we're going to in our minds understand it. There are three things that are involved in us following and choosing the way of wisdom. In our lives, when the opportunities come, we must first receive correction. He says that we must be willing to be teachable. We must be quick to hear, slow to speak, as James would say. That we must be willing that when we hear something pointed out to us that might be wrong, that we listen, and if we're found to be wrong, we correct our ways and move forward. Aren't you glad we live in a society that is open to being told that we're wrong? Always like, please, please show me my default issues, my problems, my deficiencies. Show them to me. You get on Facebook every day. People are open. Could you please show me how I'm politically incorrect in this moment? Could you show me how I don't believe correctly? I'm not talking about wishy-washy, whatever happens. We talked last week about not doubting in the Lord. What I'm saying is that in our lives, and especially in our relationship with the Lord, we must be willing to be corrected and moved in a different direction. The second thing that he talks about in that chapter 9 of Proverbs, he talks about the fact that we must, if we're going to have wisdom, the beginning of wisdom starts with fearing God. Not in a cowering way, but in a way of respect. 
We recognize how valuable he is to us, how much we depend on him, how much we need him, how important he is, and we are in awe of his authority. And then the last thing that he says in that chapter 9 of Proverbs, you can go look at that later, he says, that we must value fellowship with God above all. We must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything will be added unto you. So when you're thinking about your life and what it means to be faithful in the midst of waiting for God to fulfill his promises, we must receive correction, fear God, and value our relationship with him above everything else. And here's the last thing that these passages are for us and what they should be. These passages are a warning to us. Solomon is a warning. The series title for this series is The Rise and Fall of King Solomon. And nobody was given more to work with at this point in his life than Solomon. And the question that is ever before the people of God and before Solomon, even as you write this. I read this week a scholar who said that it's almost as if the writer of this passage, who knows the ending that is coming, is writing all of this with a wink or with a nod or like a just wait to see what happens next. Because Solomon does not handle prosperity well. And the question for us is, how do we handle success? Do we use our success, as Solomon started to do, to point people to our God? You know, sometimes it's easier in difficulty than success to point people to God. I saw a report, I don't know if you saw this report this week, but the national media is obviously covering what's happening here in Nashville and North Nashville and East Nashville, Germantown and Mount Juliet and Cookville and that whole 50-mile path. And there was a CBS news journalist that was here and he was asked about his impressions. And he said, one of the things that is true is every person that I've talked to has talked to me about God. Now listen, sometimes it's easier in the midst of difficulty and desperation to talk about and to point people to our God than it is when we've got everything together. And Solomon is a warning for us about the fact that when we've got things together, we better be thinking about how we're going to use it to glorify God and not how we're going to keep it to ourselves. I read again a story this week about one of the guys caught up in the Brady sweepstakes. You know what the Brady sweepstakes is? Tom Brady may be switching football teams this year. And at the top of the list is your Tennessee Titans, right? One of the guys also caught up in it is the current quarterback of the Las Vegas Raiders, which is just weird to say. It's a guy named David Carr. He's a very successful quarterback, but if Tom Brady wants to go there, David Carr's going to have to find a different place. A couple of years ago, he got a brand new huge contract. And when the NFL huge contract for quarterbacks, we're talking about 20 to 25 million a year. And they ask him, David, what are you going to do? He came out, he signed the contract, it's training camp. He comes out, he's around reporters. What are you going to do with your new contract? You got all this money, what are you going to do? He goes, first of all, I'm going to splurge on Chick-fil-A. Anytime I want to go to Chick-fil-A, I'm going to Chick-fil-A and I don't care anymore. Like, awesome. And they say, well, okay, what's the second thing? He says, I'm going to tithe to my church. 
And I would kind of joke, kind of laugh with him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Goody, goody guy, you know. But he is a, he's a very dedicated spiritual man. And they said, really, David? <laughs> really? What are you going to do with all this money? And this is his quote, and I love this quote. He said, I'm just excited about how much good this money is going to do for other people. That I get the opportunity to use it for the glory of God. So here's my question to you, because every one of us in this room, in some way or another, is prosperous. We have been blessed. I can't help but think, when I was looking at stuff, literally the campaign in 1928 for Republican presidential candidates, if you will elect me, we'll find you, a, we will wait a way for you, every family in America to have a chicken in their pot on Sunday. Not the rest of the week. Just Sunday. You realize when you go to the store, the cheapest meat you can find is, I mean, actual meat, not the stuff they process and put together separately. Like actual meat is chicken, right? And that was their goal. Now we go, that's our budget option. We are prosperous people. God expects for us to use what he has granted us with to show his glory to the people around us. So wherever you are, whatever gifting you have, whatever prosperity you have, business, arts, entertainment, home, family, school. Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch of the entire cosmos over which Jesus does not declare mine. And our purpose is to glorify God and extend His kingdom. One last thing before we go. Because Solomon also points us forward. Because he was a man that lived a very full life. But he is not the man that lived the fullest life in history. In Matthew chapter 12 verse 42 it says, The queen of the south, y'all know who that is? Sheba. Will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says, people came from all over the world to see Solomon. And right here standing in your presence is someone greater than Solomon. And you aren't listening to a word I say. Solomon shows us a glimpse of what a kingdom united under the leadership of God looks like for the glory of God. Jesus will bring that to fruition. He has already paid the price on the cross. He has already risen from the grave. And we have the promise that He is coming again. And God keeps His promises. And until that day, until that happens, we are to remain faithful, declaring the glory of God, His coming, and the spread of His kingdom with everything that we have. My prayer is that we'll be a church that will do exactly that. Let's pray together.